broadcasting live. It's America's longest-running talk show on computers. It's Computer America, bringing you the biggest names in technology with guest interviews, new products, and your emails. Listen live at ComputerAmerica.com on any device around the world. Email the show at live at ComputerAmerica.com or find us on social media. Be sure to check out our website for contests, giveaways, show notes, live video stream, podcasts, and more. You're listening to Computer America. Hello and welcome into the Computer America Show. We are the nation's longest running, nationally syndicated radio talk show on computers and technology. Thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Ben Crossman, and I hope all of you are having a wonderful day today. And we can make it a little bit better because we have a full hour of Computer America for you right now. So joining us today in the second part of the program, well, we are going to be doing computer and technology news. And that's where we cover a bunch of things, including, well, let's face it, uh, one of the biggest stories is the fact that Google was recently fined a paltry $5 billion for being anti-competitive in the search market. So we'll talk about that, why that happened. Uh, let's see, Comcast, if you want to talk big numbers, uh, Comcast dropped their bid to buy uh, 21st Century Fox, so that's $71 billion down the drain, and Disney cements itself as a premier content provider, uh, and I guess so much more. So, folks, second part of the show, computer technology news, going to be a lot of fun, but in the first part, we have a guest joining us, and hey, that's going to be iBeat today. So, iBeat, that's I-B-E-A-T, they make a, well... No other way to put it, a smartwatch that is really good for your heart. So joining us today will be the CEO of the company to tell us all about the product, what it does, how it works, and more. So yeah, let's uh, let's go ahead and get a couple things out of the way before we get started, including ComputerAmerica.com. That's where you'll find everything from the show notes to a link to our guest website. Anything and everything having to do with today's show will be in one place. So that if you are busy, if your hands are tied, don't worry. As soon as you get your hands untied, we will have everything right there for you. Uh, also, be sure to check out the social media contest brought to you by Logitech, where we give away a prize every single Friday to a lucky listener live on the show. And be sure to check out the live video feed, which, uh, you know, so primarily a radio program. But if you feel that's more your speed, then, hey, that's brought to you by OWC. So all that and more, ComputerAmerica.com. Check it out. So why don't we go ahead and just get started with, uh, you know, with our guest? And yeah, so as I said before, company iBeats, they make a very stylish watch. Uh, very excited to always talk about the blend of not just technology and so many different fields, but technology and medicine. Yeah, it's a it's a really exciting uh, time to. I guess, you know, be paying attention to this. So joining us by the phone is Mr. Ryan Howard, and he is the CEO of the company. So Ryan, how you doing? Welcome on to Computer America. Happy that you could join us. Hey, Ben, I'm doing great today. I appreciate the time very much. Thank you for having me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is going to be fun because, you know, as I said before, we've uh, talked a lot about this field, about the idea that, you know, having these sensors everywhere and everything, it's uh, really opening up new doors that we haven't had before, especially when it comes to medicine. So, uh, you know, before we get, you know, talk about exactly what it is that you do, give us some background on the company and give us some background on yourself. Were you always in the medical field? Were you always into technology? Uh, tell us about yourself. 
Yeah, so I started a company about 15 years ago called Practice Fusion, and we had the good fortune of growing it into the largest physician-patient community in the U.S. It was, and it still is, an electronic health record platform that a doctor would use to basically serve their patients for between you know scheduling, managing the patient's chart, ordering prescriptions, labs, and you know I left in 2015, and the company had a fair amount of success. And, and when I left, I candidly did not you know, have plans to work in healthcare again. It's an incredibly challenging space. And um, I just, I had been doing it for 10 years. Um, at the end of 2015, a really good friend of mine, his name was Mark Dunley, had passed away in his sleep. And that was really the genesis of the idea of IB. And to give you some background, the company, what, what the company is doing is that it's really trying to tackle the, the problem of people. The product itself is really trying to track and ensure people are alive and breathing. And mm-hmm. so, when you take a step back and look at um, the ways that people uh, pass away from the mortality perspective, um, cardiac arrest is the single biggest killer in the world, and it kills more people than any single category of cancer. And the, one of the disease states that really leads to cardiac arrest is heart disease, and two-thirds of people over 52 have heart disease. So that's really the spirit of, of what the genesis of the product was. Um, what we built is basically a monitor, it's in a smartwatch form factor, and it's using a number of proprietary sensors that we've developed and validated with large universities and third parties. And what it's doing is that it's tracking tissue oxygenation, it's tracking perfusion on the wrist, so that's the volume uh, and, and velocity of blood, of blood flow, tracking pulse strength and heart rate like any other wearable and temperature. And in that, if you have something that catastrophically goes wrong with you, it's going to basically detect that real time. We, have, we actually have a neural network on board, so it's, there's, it's using AI on the device to make a judgment call if you're okay or not. And then it's going to go, hey, Ben, are you okay, yes or no? And it's going to count down for 10 seconds. If you're incapacitated, which you would be in a major catastrophic event, um, it's going to then turn on a cellular radio and GPS and reach out to our dispatch, the 24-7 multilingual dispatch, it's going to reach out to emergency contacts as well, and it's also going to reach out to 911 with your medical history that you entered during the setup. Um, the challenge, though, is if you're not breathing, you have about three to five minutes to get CPR, and the average ambulance is about nine to 12 minutes away. So mm-hmm. to solve for that, what we did is we created an app called Heart Hero. You can download it today in the App Store, and what that app does is that it will train you in CPR and will test your proficiency. And from there, we'll go, hey, Ben, are you open to being a good Samaritan if someone nearby needs help? Do you want to join our Heart Hero CPR network? So if you say yes, then I'm wearing the device. And that use case that I just mentioned happened. If I have a catastrophic event and I don't respond, you would be summoned if you're close by as one of the first responders. And we have about 1.2 million people on that network network today. So it's the largest safety network of its type, that, and that inherently comes with the solution. That, and, and you know, we're going to break that down into its parts even further, but that's a very uh, novel way to you know, kind of go about an app because you know, most, most companies that come on the show and they have a product such as yours or uh, you know, just like a, a medical device or a standalone product, the app is in some way to control, to monitor, to, you know, mm-hmm. over time. You actually have a companion app that, you know, isn't strict, you know, because obviously you don't want to download the app, be a heart hero and be like, oh, uh, Ben is currently having a heart attack. And it's like, I'm Ben, I'm having the heart attack. I can't give myself chest compressions. <laughs> um, so you actually have an app that, uh, you know, it's just kind of something 
you know, just kind of good to have in your back pocket for other people. And that's a pretty novel way to approach this as well. So before we get into the app and, you know, even further about, uh, you know, just what it entails to, to get into that, let's talk about the actual watch. And as I said, the video portion, we're showing, uh, you know, the actual product. And one of the first things that strikes me is that, you know, uh, when we were looking for a smartwatch for, you know, one of our family members, they really kind of declined every single one because they looked like a computer strapped to your wrist. And only a certain amount of companies can get away with that. Uh, you know, but I think even some of the bigger players, uh, you know, take Apple Watch, for instance, they went through a lot of pain and struggle to make a watch look like a good looking watch. I think you've done the same thing. Your watch looks really, really good. Talk about the design. Why was this important? And what does, you know, what can people actually find physically on the iBeat smartwatch? Yeah, so when we started the company, we wanted to make sure that the device looked relatively high-end. And some of the analogies we used is that, you know, if I drive through town in a Bugatti, right, everyone will probably hate me. But if I drive through town in a decent BMW, you'll be like, yeah, that's kind of a nice car, right? That, that's a, it has beautiful style, but it's not so unattainable that it, um, it creates like an outlier perspective, if that makes sense. And so we wanted something that looks great, but would appease the masses as well but also would look good in most scenarios. So I wear the device, I wear it with a suit often and it blends in beautifully. I wear it with gym clothes, it works really well. I wear it with you know t-shirt and jeans and it looks great. So that was, you know, the stigma, what we're really competing against and, and you know, I know you're mentioning wearables and Apple Watch, but candidly, we're really competing against a life alert. So think about I've fallen mm -hmm. and I can't get up. Think about that pendant. It looks like a dog collar and it has a massive social stigma to it. And if we met in person today and I was wearing one, you'd automatically brand me as sick as or elderly. And so the part of the inherent design was not to be too polarizing. And so, you know, some of the designs we looked at, some of them looked like a swatch, watch, some looked like a Fitbit. And we wanted something that, that blended in that did not brand you at all. And so we think the design is very elegant. It looks great. Um, and we're excited about that. Some of the other components too, there's a single button at the bottom of the device and I'm holding it right now. And if you press that button, it also acts as a life alert. So if I'm being followed, if someone breaks in my home, if I've fallen, I can simply press this button if I'm in danger. And there's two-way communication on the device, so I can basically go through a menu and say, someone's in my house or I've fallen, whatever it may be, and that's communicated to our dispatch as well. So we've, I think we've elegantly hid that. The device has, it has antennas going through the band, but obviously you can't see that, but um, very elegantly designed, so it has incredible cell reception. It's the only piece of hardware that's connected to two different networks. So beyond, you know, cell phones, wearables as well, no one actually has that. And we did that because if you're in a catastrophic event, obviously you're only as strong as your weakest link and your weakest link, you know, the, the cell coverage is not perfect on any network. So redundancy was very important there. So the device has better cell coverage than any single network can provide out there, which was important. Um, lastly, the clasp, it looks great, but the other part is that clasping a watch will take, you know, an average about 45 seconds. So it's kind of hard to do the dexterity you need. Even if you're younger and very coordinated, it's not always super straightforward. Mm -hmm. As you get older, there's degradation there. And so what we did is we have a one, you, you adjust it one time, and then once it's adjusted, you never adjust it again, and it locks in place. If you accidentally unclasp it and let go, it still stays on your wrist, so that avoids the watch being dropped. So there's, there was a lot of thoughtfulness that went into the design. We spent a tremendous amount of time on it, and we're, we're happy with it overall. And then the female version, 
is a white and gold. We think it's stunning, and the black version is a gunmetal and black. I said the men's version is a gunmetal and black. Right. Yeah. No. There's uh, two different styles. I see them. They're very, very sleek. Each one. Um, but I do want to ask you about you know kind of why you chose a button instead of I don't know uh, voice activation seems to be all the rage lately. Uh, I, I mean, I'm sure that you went through a number of designs to make sure that you know uh, the audience is comfortable using you know using it in a certain way and that you have the least amount of accidental alerts as you could possibly have. Uh, why a button? Yeah, so the button, we optimized for a 50-plus audience, and, and that took a lot of changing our kind of mental models and paradigms internally. So we, the team, they're younger. You know, the average age on the team is probably 30, 35. And so, you know, the team definitely, their, their base mental model, and mine as well, was more of an Apple Fitbit kind of style, touch, lots of features, lots of text, lots of scrolling. And as we did user testing, we found that many of our users, you know, the 50-plus audience, people in their 60s, 70s, and 80s, didn't know how to scroll. So just as an anecdotal story, when you turn this device on for the first time, it literally teaches you how to scroll because we found that in, in, our, in our user testing that that was a problem. Um, the, button, the beauty of the button is that it can be pitch black. I, my glasses can fall off. I can be hard sight, et cetera, so, and I can still press that button if I'm in a bind, and that's all I need to do. And then the dexterity and, and um, the, you know, the, the strength needed to push the button is you can be, you know, relatively, um, you don't have to be a bodybuilder if that makes sense. So <laughs> all these things, the amount of pressure to press that button, the button location, so the button was originally on the side and basically on the bottom was ubiquitous because the thumb presses it, there's more strength there. So there, a tremendous amount of thought went into the design and all these nuances that actually you're noticing. Um, there's a lot of why behind it as well. And, and candidly, we did not start here on most of it. The original device didn't look like this. The button wasn't on the bottom. So these were from, a num uh, you know, I'd say hundreds of hours of user testing with our target audience, people, you know, 50 plus, but really in their 60s, 70s, we wanted to make sure that, you know, grandpa was literally 95 years old. He yeah. could still activate the device, even if he couldn't see it, et cetera. Um, and so all these things are, you know, obviously critical and, and um, we think that we can serve most users. Right. And, uh, and uh, again, kind of poking through the website, you have a number of different options. It's not strictly, uh, you know, contact my emergency contact or contact, uh, you know, uh, life-saving services. You have things like I'm, I'm in danger, I'm hurt. If someone were to activate this device because they were in any kind of predicament, what are, do you, you know, what do you kind of primarily cover? Do you, do you cover, um, you know, I don't want to call the ambulance, but I want to call or I want to notify at least, um, you know, let's say my son or someone else in the house or uh, what use cases does your watch have after it's activated? Yeah, effectively all of the above, but you're nailing it. So, so based on the emergency, so I could just have a caretaker or my son could be here all the time and I could just literally summon him from downstairs if I just needed something simple. And so when you press the button, the device asks ask you a question. It says, do you, want to, do you want to contact just your contacts or 911 and your contacts? So you choose a, and the first question asked is an escalation path. And if we don't get an answer, we default just to emergency contacts as opposed to sending 911 to your house. And obviously, this is if the button is just pressed. If it's a cardiac emergency, our dispatch knows that. They have a probability on that as well. So in the, in the cardiac use case, if a user hasn't responded and we know it's a cardiac emergency, or we believe it is rather, we will escalate very aggressively and make sure 911 automatically comes. But to your question, 
the user chooses what group they want to basically be summoned. And then from there, everything else is simply additional data for our dispatch to manage. So if it's, you know, the ability, you're, usually there's going to be someone close by and yeah. usually there's going to be someone far, far away as well. So you think about it, my mother's in New Hampshire, my brother's close by, he would be notified, I would as well. And if my mother had fallen and she's pressing, she's pressed that menu item, we'd both be notified as well. So part of it is to make sure the person serving the, the user of the device is more informed, right? Coming with the right resources or urgency. If it's something small, they can wait a few minutes. If they fall and hurt themselves, it should be expedited. But it's also to keep all the other parties in the loop as well. Uh, no, uh, makes perfect sense. And I, I'm, I'm assuming there's some kind of feature where if you, you know, if you want to notify 911, then it doesn't wait for you to get through five or six menu items. I'm sure it just alerts. And then, as you said, the additional data points are good to have, but not necessary for you to complete to start to get the help that you're the care that you need. So that's uh, <laughs> you, you can you, yeah, absolutely you can press this button. And mm-hmm. when the initial menu comes up, you can notify 911 immediately. Okay. Uh, no, no, that's great. And it's not like, it's like, uh, I, I'm not going to give stupid examples, but all right. So there's that. And then, you know, something else I'm noticing here is some kind of portal, some kind of dashboard. Uh, obviously a lot of, you know, this thing, uh, as you know, as compact as you've made it, I'm sure things like registration, setting up, putting in contact numbers, blah, blah, blah. That's better done through some other means. I'm assuming a computer, uh, talk about the dashboard. What can you set up there? Uh, what, uh, what's in there? Sure. So just to give you some context, when you receive the device, the out-of-box experiences, excuse me, it's such that you turn the device on for the first time, it walks through, again, it quickly teaches you how to swipe so you know how to interact with the device. Mm-hmm. From there, it gives you a code, it tells you to go to IV.com, and basically you put in that code and it knows that this device is yours. Um, you put in your demographic information. We encourage users to put in their past medical history. So think about your current diagnoses, if you have heart disease and diabetes, your allergies and your medications. And the reason why these are super critical is that if you, you, if you invoke an emergency, whether it's manual or cardiac based, that data will go automatically to 911. So when the EMTs arrive, they're just significantly much more prepared, especially if you're incapacitated, you can't speak. The device during the emergency is obviously conveying the data to them it's also flashing it on the screen. So if someone arrives to you, and this could be anywhere, it could be in your home, could be in the park, that data is being shown real time. And the device is also encouraging anyone nearby to give the person CPR as well. Back to the portal, full setup, billing information, obviously. And then within the portal itself, you're putting in your emergency contacts. And then what we're seeing is that many of the emergency contacts are becoming heart heroes, which is awesome because if I'm really at risk and you're my brother, you're going to be that much more prepared if you know CPR to serve me. And so that's really great for us. And then also because you download the app, you're also able to serve other people in the community, which is candidly why we're doing this to mm-hmm. have, you know, a massive social impact too. So all those components are in it. If you have a caretaker, so let's say I'm a little bit older, you're my younger brother and you set it up for me or, or I can give you explicit permissions to go in. You can see that I've been active. You can see emergencies I've had over a historical timeline as well. So if I've fallen, if I've had a cardiac event, if I've invoked the button, all those emergencies are logged, how they were resolved. So all that data is in there as well. So if you have a large family that or caretakers that are basically crowdsourcing care around this person, we can give all of them visibility into it very easily too. So that's exciting. 
The device will have step tracking and full fall detection in the next couple months, and the hardware is incredibly robust. So when you dock the system to charge it, so there's two ways to charge it. You can take it off and put it on a dock, and, and the battery lasts about three to four days, so much, much longer than most wearables in the market. But the other thing that we did as novel is that there's a little battery pack that comes with it as well. And so while I'm wearing it, you know, if I'm really at risk, I don't want to take the watch off, right? Mm -hmm. I don't want to charge it for an hour every few days. And this little battery pack is the size of about two quarters. It's magnetic and it clips to the side while I'm wearing it. So the same, you know, when I watch TV um, once every few days, you know, when the device needs, uh, it needs to be charged, I clip this on the side and it charges it in about an hour. So that's novel as well, and that's something that you know, we're really excited about that serves the users well. And so these are some of the things that we're doing, but during, during that charging, the device turns on the cell radio and it looks for any updates, and it pulls down uh, these newer features. So, so if you buy the device, it will simply have step tracking in the next month or two. It will have calorie tracking. So we have a number of other features that are being syndicated, and it just, it just candidly magically happens. Yeah, uh, no, that's uh, and and really, it shows just how much uh, you know, kind of effort you put into making this as effortless as possible for the end user. Because obviously, things like updates. I mean, heck, you know, uh, people who are very tech savvy don't even do updates as often as yep. they should. Yep. So yep. no, it it sounds like you really nailed that one. Um, let's talk real quick about um, some of the features here and. One thing I'm kind of curious about is the medical grade sensor. That's uh, what you have listed here on your website. Um, obviously, tracking things like blood flow and heart rate and uh, and maybe even blood pressure. I mean, that's not the easiest thing in the world for um, you know for a lot of uh, devices to do. I mean, are people going to kind of notice that their watch is swelling and restricting and tightening and then you know slowly deflating like a you know like an arm cuff would? I mean, how are you able to track all these uh, vitals and do it so accurately? Sure. So, so to be clear, we're, we are tracking, we're tracking tissue, tissue oxygenation. We're tracking, as I mentioned, circulation, heart rate, pulse, strength, and some others as well. And motion too. Motion is really critical. If we know you're moving, then we likely know that you're okay. Um, we're not doing blood pressure. So a blood pressure cup would tighten, as you're mentioning, only if you guys do that. And those are mainly, you know, just point solutions just for blood pressure. Um, this is the sensors we built. Again, they're proprietary. They're novel. I'll talk about how we developed them and trained the, trained the sensors and algorithms as, as well. But they're basically using uh, PPG, so light-emitting diodes that are basically shining light into your skin, and they're seeing different conditions within your skin and different artifacts as well. And so what we did is we developed the sensor initially. We then worked with the third party to ensure that the data that we were gathering, for example, tissue oxygenation, we baseline that off a clinical sensor to make sure the data was accurate. So that's how we started off. We work with that same third party, their name is Medici, to ensure that it worked on elderly person, people. So when you, think about, when you think about a wearable, everyone that you've named today is really optimized towards a younger crowd. So the Apple Watch is really a 30 to 40 kind of cohort, maybe a little bit younger than that. Mm -hmm. And with that, why that's important is that the majority of these wearables have not been deployed on an elderly population. And as you age, let's think about your risk there's muscle, fat, and bone degradation, and that actually makes it dramatically more challenging to get strong signal in any of these um, biological artifacts that I mentioned. So we, we baseline the sensor, and then we basically started working exclusively with elderly people, and we designed the sensor to be optimized for their skin types, 
muscle mass, fat degradation, et cetera. And we had, we had success there. From there, we worked with a third party to also train the device on healthy people. So we basically trained our algorithm to make sure that this is a healthy person. They're fine. They're going about their day. The, the device should not be flagging an issue with these people, if that makes sense. And the device, as I mentioned, it has artificial intelligence on board, so it has a quad convolutional neural network. So this is, this is basically executing the algorithm that we trained. Um, from there, we worked with a major university, a top 10 university in the US. And imagine you're going in for open heart surgery today for an implantable. So you're getting a pacemaker put in. They would actually encourage you to wear the IV clinical device. And during that event, you could potentially have a cardiac arrest or you could have a cardiac arrest because it's being invoked, meaning that they want to test the implantable. So they invoke a cardiac arrest to make sure that the implantable they just put in works. So during that event, we are actually at the end of it, we're getting an output of the EKG from the electrophysiologist. We're getting, and that data is timestamped. And we use that data again to train our algorithm to go, Hey, this is an unhealthy pattern. This is where we want you to start actually having a conversation with the user. So this is literally hundreds of thousands of hours of training data to actually build the algorithm. We actually did some other testing as well on animals. So the validation has been very thorough, very rigorous and working over, over the last two years. And um, I think that it's incredibly novel. No, no one's ever done this before as well. So we think it's you know insanely high utility to the user, solves the macro problem. And um, we're really excited about putting on people's wrist. Um, the, the first devices, started shipping last week and I just got a notification during this call that the first one was just um, received by our end users who are excited about that as well. Wow. That's uh, no, that's very cool. And, uh, and I'm surprised that you thought of a way to kind of test that because it's a very novel way to, you know, kind of throwing a bunch of I beats out there and hoping that, wow, I hope someone gets a heart attack so we can test our system. Um, that's a very novel way that you were able to kind of get information and actually test it. So that's uh, very, very reassuring in its own right. So you mentioned, yeah, that, that, you're, 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 sorry, you're, you're nailing it. These events are there, there, you know, it's a single, you know, cardiac arrest is the single biggest kill in the world. That's so it's so spontaneous across such a large population. It would be nearly impossible to, you know, we, we would need devices on millions and millions of people to actually determine it. So this was a way that we were really excited to, um, to solve for. So it was kind of, it was a lot of fun figuring out. Yeah, no, and, and for sure. So uh, you mentioned that the first one started shipping. Uh, the first ones have been received, and I'm sure you're going to start seeing people connect to you know your system and all that data, that kind of thing. Um, talk about how much a device such as this costs. So right now the device is $250. The ongoing service is $20 a month, and the service includes cellular connectivity through two networks, so the user never sees that. The user never has a bill from AT&T or Verizon or whomever, they simply pay for our service and the cellular connectivity is on. It also includes access to our 24-7 multilingual dispatch and it includes access to the Heart Hero Network. And so the one thing I, I did not mention about the Heart Hero Network is that we also have a million defibrillators on the network as well. Meaning if I'm having an event, let's say you then get notified, the second closest person, hopefully you come to give me CPR, the second closest person will be notified to bring a defibrillator. So all that part of the service component as well. 
I think I've heard about the defibrillator part. Like, I think we've covered that part in the news before. Um, I'm not sure if some articles were written about that, but just having access to, you know, that, those devices before even an ambulance gets there uh, dramatically increases the chances of someone surviving such an event. So I, I think I actually remember talking about that one on the show. So very cool. And, uh, you know, we have a couple more minutes here, but I wanted to ask you about, again, you know, the, the Heart Hero, uh, you know, kind of uh, network that you're building out. And I think it's uh, certainly something that is needed, something that technology can readily provide. It's not something, uh, you know, completely impossible for people to join and work with. But my question is, you know, with uh, with a number of different services, I think Apple and Android and a number of different cell carriers are a part of this. But recently, they've done things like Amber Alerts that are pushed directly to people's phones. Um, you know, you can't really opt out of them. They're a service of you know uh, local authorities. Have you thought about going with something a bit more? Yeah, and, and trust me, building out your own network is great. Getting the word out by yourself is something that uh, is certainly hard but worth doing. Uh, but going on, you know, kind of a more fundamental level, something that's baked into, uh, you know, many many kinds of services at the same time. Have you thought of getting the Heart Hero service? You know, just something that comes baseline with a smartphone. Yeah, so I think that you know, candidly, we're we're really focused on getting the watch launched, and we just did that. In in um, this has come up a few times. We have a a lot of partners and investors that are interested in productizing the Heart Hero network, obviously for other networks. So you know, imagine first and foremost, we think we can serve other types of emergencies on the network. So whether it's an assault, we could only you know, we, we have a large group of EMTs, firefighters, and police officers on the network. So if it was a, if it was an assault. We can notify close by off hours police officers, for example. The other piece is that, you know, think about if you have um, a violent allergy, right? Anaphylaxis. Well, actually, and it, it, and uh, I'm going to have to stop you right there because we're about to head off to break. Ryan, would you mind staying over for just a couple minutes so we could wrap this up? We'll sure, get sure. Your... Absolutely. So, everyone, uh, the commercials are here, and that means we'll be back in just a couple minutes. Everyone, we're talking to IB. You can find more at IB.com and, of course, ComputerAmerica.com. We have a link to it right there. Everyone, we'll be right back. More Computer America after this. Stay tuned. Greece is cheap. But the airfare costs a fortune. Paris? Not much closer. And again, airfare... What about Puerto Vallarta? Let's face it, flying anywhere is just too expensive. Wait, what's this? Low-cost airlines. With one call to low-cost airlines, you'll drastically slash your travel costs. We're talking insanely low airline prices to any of your favorite destinations. Where would you like to go? London, Rome, Costa Rica, Australia? Wow, that's cheap. So why wait? Call now to learn how crazy cheap it is to fly anywhere in the U.S. or international. Our prices are so low, we can't publish them. The only way to get them is to call to instantly hear the most amazing best deals on airline travel. It's that easy. So call now and start packing. 800-215-4461. 800-215-4461. 800-215-4461. That's 800-215-4461. We are all Brother Wolf. Ten years ago, a group of locals banded together to create positive change. We took animals into our homes, held adoption events at local retailers, and talked to the community about our mission to help build a no-kill Asheville. A decade later, we have achieved so many victories for animals in need. There's been so much progress, yet there's still so much to do. 
As part of our year-long celebration, we encourage you to become a member of our special Compassionate Circle program. With a monthly donation of $10 or more, you will have behind-the-scenes access to the work we are doing at Brother Wolf. Our goal is to reach 1,000 members because we receive no government funding. Working together, we can help build and sustain no-kill communities. Learn more at CompassionateCircle.BWAR.org. We are a 501c3 tax-deductible organization. And welcome back to the Computer America Show. It is 32 minutes past the hour. And uh, if you're just tuning in, welcome into Computer America. And uh, if you miss any part of today's show, feel free to check us out wherever podcasts are heard. That is just today's show in its entirety rebroadcast for your convenience. So iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, what have you. We're there uh, in its entirety. So uh, if you're just joining us, we have been talking to IB. Great interview so far as we talk with the CEO, Mr. Ryan Howard. And yeah, we're, uh, you know, just kind of getting into, or uh, I'm sorry, uh, he's just getting into the reasons for, you know, bu- building out the Heart Hero Network. And I apologize, but, uh, you know, I believe you were just sa- about to say something about allergies. Yeah, so, so the question was, are there other utilities of the Heart Hero Network or could it be licensed or partnered or, or simply be installed in the phone when, when, you, when you get a new handset? So we think the, the, answer, the short answer is yes, absolutely. And so other use cases that we're interested in tapping right now is, you know, if you're wearing the device and you have a violent allergy, anaphylaxis, what's interesting about that is that you actually know it's coming on. You feel like something's wrong, it's coming on, but it comes on very quickly. And we feel like we can put Heart Heroes on the network whether they have anaphylaxis themselves and, and whether they have EpiPens themselves, or even if they don't, you could simply be armed with one and come to the aid of someone else. So much like a defibrillator is on the network, we think other resources such as Narcan, such as, uh, such as EpiPens could actually be resources, whether they're static, meaning whether they're fixed at a building where, you know, in San Francisco, many of the buildings have defibrillators or whether a resource, an individual, has those with them as well. And we're seeing, you know, beyond the EpiPen, we're seeing a new, we're seeing a new um, emergence of incredibly small defibrillators as well, which we believe can be, you know, they're, they're tiny. They're a little bit, they're mm-hmm. as big as your, your iPhone. They're a little bit thicker. And um, we think people, you know, they'll have a couple hundred dollar price point. We think some people will be traveling with them all the time. So we think that there's other use cases we can definitely tackle. We think that there's other integrations we can do. So whether it's with your phone, whether it's with another wearable, whether it's you're driving your car or your Tesla and it gets into an accident and it calls for help nearby and basically some, you know, first responders pull over that are driving around you, right? I mean, the, the response time would be exponentially faster. There's clearly other utility for the network and we're really interested in basically verticalizing that as well. No, and uh, no, it makes a lot of sense. So we've covered the price, we cover you know kind of what it does. Uh, some of the other uh, things I wanted to ask you before we say goodbye include where can you pick this up? Because I, you know, I don't think I've seen this on the rack at CVS. Um, where are you going to start se- selling these things? Yeah, absolutely. So, so anyone that's interested can go to ib.com and purchase the device and the service as well, um, or they can just purchase the device and buy the service later on as well. So we will. We'll be in Amazon soon, so we'll be in Amazon in about 60 days, and then we'll be in major retail outlets towards the end of the year as well. All right. No, looking forward to that as well. And just real quick, the uh, the 24-hour monitoring service, I'm assuming this is some kind of uh, ongoing subscription, so the IBS 250, 
Um, are there different tiers for the back end of the service? Is it included in the price of the watch? Talk about the uh, any kind of ongoing payments. Sure, yeah. So the ongoing service is $20 a month, and that's about a third to a fifth of the cost of a life alert. So we definitely wanted to come up with something that was definitely you know, more competitive in the price area. There's no contracts, so a user can cancel at any time. If the user wants to prepay for the year, the service fee is $200 for the entire year. Um, they save about 20% in that model. All right, no, and uh, makes perfect sense. So as you said before, but I'd like you to repeat it, if people want to find out more, if they want to check out the video, uh, pictures, anything like that, where's the best place they can go? They can go to ib.com. ib.com. All right, very simple. And we have a link to that in the show notes, as we said. And in the meantime, everyone, Ryan Howard, CEO of iBeat. And Ryan, thank you for coming on the program. Uh, a lot of fun talking about this. And like I said before, this what you're doing is... Uh, is at the crossroads of technology and medicine. And it's very, very cool to see what uh, people such as yourself are able to do with, uh, you know, with technology. So thank you for sharing this with us. Thanks so much, Ben. Thanks for having us. And yeah, we're excited to you know, hopefully build a great business, but at the same time, have a social impact as well. So really appreciate the time. And I really appreciate everyone for listening today. Our pleasure, our pleasure. So Ryan, until next time, have a great day. Awesome. Take care. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. All right, everyone, and there he goes. So, as we said before, if you want to check it out for yourself, ib.com, and uh, yeah, not much else to it. So, very, very cool. Happy that he was able to join us, and uh, yeah, if I'm not mistaken, we uh, possibly could be receiving a unit to test here in the near future, so maybe we'll even have a review up on Computer America, because we, you know, hey, we kind of know someone who could probably get a kick out of this. So there you have it. And if you miss, again, if you miss any part of today's program, check out the podcast and it's today's show in its entirety. So, hey, don't worry if you miss anything. It's right there. So uh, here we go. Let's continue on. We are moving on from our interview with iBeat. And now we are going to computer and technology news. Here we go. Let's play the jingle. And today's computer and technology news is brought to you by OWC. They are the official sponsor of Computer America. And, of course, they are the sponsor of the video portion as well as the computer and technology news. If you want to find out more about them, what they do, they make a lot of very cool products that are for professionals uh, traveling or graphic design, things like that. And especially towards people who are Apple users or anyone in the Mac ecosystem. Well, hey... It's going to be for you. So uh, find out more about them, owcdigital.com. But I think with uh, that, I found a pretty good segue because one of our stories for today actually has to do with one of the app newest Apple products, and that is the MacBook Pro. So the i9 MacBook Pro, you may have heard of it. It's, uh, <laughs> and I apologize for this pun, but it's a hot mess. So one of the news features of the newest MacBook Pros that is, uh, I guess, driving the temperature up is the fact that the MacBook Pro comes with a, or can come with an i9. You have to opt into it. Uh, it's, it's only in the 15-inch model, and you have to pay an exorbitant amount of money, but you get an i9 processor. So for those of you who are not familiar with uh, i7, i5, i9, uh, Intel-labeled products, 
that is the processor of the computer. The i9 is the newest version. And they have, I want to say the i7 is like, uh, let's see, the i7 I think was like 7, um, 7 core, 14 thread or something like that. But the i9, I want to say, has like 18 threads, hyper-threaded. It's a, it's a bit of a beast. And let's see, uh, i9 CPU, I want to say it has 9 cores in it. No, 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 I'm sorry. Uh, actually, we can check it out right here. Uh, let's see, the i9, da, 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 reading about this real quick. 10 cores, I'm sorry, 10 cores, 20 threads. So what that means is that each one of those, or every everything you do on your computer, be it a browser, be it a program, be it anything and everything, uses a certain level of processing power. And the more threads, cores you have, the more simultaneous simultaneous processes you can you know kind of do so if you have a browser open and another browser open and seven more browsers open besides your computer will not slow down simply because you have 10 iterations of a browser open it will be assigned to its own individual core or however many the software decides it can pull from well the other trade-off is that when you have that many cores you're using a lot more electricity because it has to do that much more uh, computational power. And the side effect of using electricity is, of course, heat. And that is where the problem seems to be coming in. So this is an article from Motherboard. And they're saying that, uh, uh, by the way, Matthew Galt, Matthew Galt wrote the article, saying that users are reporting that the new 15-inch MacBook Pro is throttling speeds because of heat issues. And they have, an, they have a uh, actually an image here showing that it's about 43 degrees Celsius, which works well over 100 degrees Fahrenheit. Nowhere near boiling, but still very, very hot. So they said that on paper, Apple's new 15-inch MacBook Pro is a beast, where it's a very slim laptop, and yeah, let's not mince words about that. Apple put as much thought and effort into the MacBook Pro as they ever do. It's very compact. Uh, I believe it's still fanless. It is uh, everything that a MacBook Pro promises to be. But if you get it decked out with all the bells and whistles, it can go from $1,300 for the baseline model, which is honestly pretty lackluster in terms of specs. But if you ramp it up to about the $7,000 price point, well, that's where you start running into a different issue. Other than the fact that you're burning money, you are now burning maybe your lap. So the six core 2.9 gigahertz processor is a powerhouse and comes unlocked and overclockable, meaning that users can push it to run even faster. But Apple fans are skeptical, especially after one YouTuber benchmarked the i9 model and discovered that the throttle that uh, that it throttled the CPU's processor speed when trying to render a video in Adobe Premiere. So they weren't doing anything out of the ordinary. Rendering a video, don't get me wrong, very, very processor intensive. That takes a lot of time and uh, it will take as much processing power as you'll give it because when you render a video, depending on the complexity and the length of the video um, and the quality of the video, you could be sitting there for hours at a time, again, depending on how much processor power you're willing to give it. Well, um, yeah, so it will, it's essentially a stress test. 
And they found again that it was throttling itself. Throttling a CPU is something that's baked into uh, another heat joke there for you. That's baked into all Intel processors. They have internal uh, thermometers that will actually tell you when the processor is getting too hot, getting too close to the solder, melting, uh, getting to the point where it's just not safe to run. For a lot of processors, I mean, I ran into this myself for a while when I was trying to overclock mine. Uh, for a lot of processors, the red zone starts at about 90 degrees Celsius and at about 100, everything shuts down, stops, and yeah, the essentially the whole thing just freezes and tries to cool itself off by any means necessary. Um, so 45 degrees, not good. Uh, obviously you'd want something ideally around, oh, I don't know, 30 degrees Celsius is about room temperature. And yeah, it's, um, something you've really, really want to keep down as much as you can. So let's see, they, uh, a certain user of Reddit has discovered that his MacBook Pro slowed down after five minutes of running Prime 95. And they said that CPU, uh, and they said that is a CPU intensive number crunching program. Again, seems like a stress test. Saying that the 2.9, and again, we're focusing on the i9 processor, went from 2.9 gigahertz to 2.5 gigahertz. Uh, and Sinbar, uh, Sinbench, which is another benchmarking program, showed similar dips in performance. Uh, let's see. Um, da, da, da. Let's uh, and obviously the article goes into a number of different use cases where people have been testing this. Uh, let's see. He says that uh, he then put the i9 in the freezer and ran the same render again, and with some additional cooling, the MacBook Pro render took about 27 minutes as opposed to over 40 minutes without the freezer. Saying that the degree of thermal throttling is not acceptable. This isn't something Apple should put on the market and sell to people. Um, see, that's the part where it's going to be left up to the individual. I'm glad that they're doing the benchmarks. I'm glad that they're making people aware. Um, it's always a concern. Heat is always a concern. When you build your own computer or even when you buy a computer, the amount of cooling that you can get is really, really important, especially for laptops, because they really don't have a lot of room for error. MacBooks have, you know, I don't want to say traditionally, but so often they are built without fans. They generate, or they, uh, they push their heat out of their aluminum case. Their aluminum case is a good conductor and they, you know, kind of bleed off their heat into whoever's lap that they're kind of sitting on. So it's not recommended that you have these things in your lap if they, you know, kind of get too hot. But the point is, i9s run hot. They're the most complex, most energy intensive processor currently on the market from Intel. And well, not counting their Xeon line of processors, but yeah, they're obviously going to have the most problem with heat. MacBooks are not traditionally the best with dissipating heat. They get by, and in the form factor that they are currently providing, they're going to be something, but it's still not going to be the best. It's not like you have a big old fan strapped to the bottom of your processor, blowing cool air or even hot air away from your, uh, you know, away from your gadgets. Um, it's still radiating heat away through the aluminum case. 
Is this a problem? Um, I, I guess. I mean, I can't imagine anyone who kind of knows what they're getting into with an i9 processor and a MacBook Pro and then running as these people are running, they're running, uh, you know, uh, CAD, you know, CAD software. They're running number crunching software. They're running benchmark software. They're running, uh, you know, video rendering software. Essentially, the most processor intensive things that you could be doing. And again, to be fair, exactly what the MacBook Pro is designed to actually do, heat's going to be a problem. There's no doubt about it. So. I don't understand if you understand that heat's a problem and you see the specs on this thing and you don't think, well, heat's going to continue to be a problem. There aren't a lot of computers out there that are going to run in pristine lab conditions in, you know, uh, at all times. That's why we have benchmarking. That's why we have real world situations and third parties who provide benchmarking results because you can't trust Apple, you can't trust Intel, you can't trust Microsoft, you can't trust anyone when they say that this runs at this speed in all situations, you can't trust that. You have to have third-party verified real-world situations, and that's what we're receiving. We are seeing real-world situations and the MacBook Pro not standing up to the heat and throttling itself. It's good to know. Um, I, I guess it may be some form of false advertising from Apple, but, you know, everyone pushes the same lie. Everyone pushes the theoretical perfect case scenario saying this is what it can do, um, but no one ever lives up to that. So I guess it's kind of a cop out to say that since no one does it, no one should expect Apple to do it. But um, yeah, I, I just thought we'd bring this to your attention that the MacBook Pro i9 as expected by some, but maybe news to others, doesn't handle heat well. So, uh, yeah, if you were thinking about putting some money down on this one, then understand that you're going to need a cooling uh, a cooling pad for this. I'm sorry, a cooling stand, like many laptops come with nowadays, and understand that uh, if you are doing something intensive, um, yeah, it's going to get hot. It's going to get really, really hot pretty fast. So I think until we, uh, like, my personal cutoff for this story is if they're doing normal things, if, if they're doing, if they're rendering a video and, you know, it takes longer because it's, it's throttling, that's understandable, has a lot of heat, blah, blah, blah. Um, but if they're doing everyday things like uh, rendering a video or working certain kinds of applications and the whole thing turns off, shuts down, and people lose their progress or lose their work because Apple didn't account for the fact that this thing is going to heat up, that's when you should get angry. You should get angry when the entire system comes to a grinding halt because of this. The fact that it's throttling itself is, is bad, but not unexpected is my point. So there you have it. We're going to kind of move on from there, but um, yeah, MacBook Pro. We're going to talk more about that when we have our uh, correspondent on. We unfortunately had to reschedule him, but Darius Derek Shawnee has some uh, comments to make about that. But um, yeah. So yeah, and, uh, and and by the way, uh, you know, someone came into the chat room and mentioned this. Uh, you know, others are taking note of it. Today is the third Thursday of the month, which is ordinarily 
our all Linux show. Marcel Gagné, Cooking with Linux. Love our Linux programs where we talk about, you know, kind of what's new in the field. And uh, as someone in the chat room just pointed out again, by the way, if you want to join us, twitch.tv forward slash Computer America. Um, yeah, uh, Marcel Gagné is posting beach pictures in his Instagram. So he's on family vacation. We don't begrudge him. Uh, you know, we appreciate what he does here on the show, but we also appreciate that, hey, people have lives. So we hope that he's uh, getting all the rest and relaxation that he could possibly get. And he will be joining us here on the program at a later date. Just want to say that the Linux show is not canceled. It's simply rescheduled. So that's what happened today with Marcel Garnier. So with, uh, let's see, let's see, let's see. Let's go ahead and move on to our next story. And this is something that... I think received a lot of news, and I'm surprised that it's not receiving equal news, the fact that it's falling through. But the FCC, you may know them, the, uh, from their greatest hits, such as the death of net neutrality. Well, as much as they've been approving and rubber stamping mega mergers like crazy, one supposed mega merger is not going to go through, it looks like. So the FCC vote likely dooms Sinclair-Tribune merger. So... That's, uh, you know, uh, Sinclair Tribune. There was a law on the books that said that you essentially, if you own a certain type of media distribution outlet. So if you like, let's say that you own a newspaper, you could not have a stake in uh, radio news. Or if you own a radio news show, you could not own stake in a television news outlet. Things like that. Well, that law was stricken from the books. That was taken away, and that led to a number of acquisitions, like almost instantly. As soon as that rule was put away, uh, Sinclair, which owns a majority, like, I mean, a huge majority of local news television stations, they went about buying newspaper like crazy. And just so that they could diversify the amount of news outlets that they could have. So that's where Tribune came in. Tribune was to be purchased. So Tribune Media was to be uh, purchased by Sinclair. And, well, here we have it. The FCC has voted to send the proposal, I'm sorry, the proposed sale to, uh, of Tribune Media properties to Sinclair to a hearing, effectively hammering the second to last nail in the coffin on the buyout. So the agency's commissioners unanimously agreed on a hearing designation order, which refers the matter to a judge. And as the article kind of notes, that's the point at which mergers usually die. So the FCC is dedicated to uh, antitrust. It's meant to, to protect consumers, making sure that these mega mergers that happen. Uh, yeah, they are. The FCC is supposedly there to protect consumers against, uh, you know, monopolistic moves. Well, here's the part that has people tripped up, saying that uh, had Sinclair declined to sell off some of its stations, its 173 broadcast stations in 81 markets, combined with Tribune's 42 stations in 33 markets, would have given, uh, I'm sorry, would have given Sinclair a 72% reach of U.S. households. And when you want to talk about monopolies, yeah, being able to reach 72% of U.S. households through local 
television news stations, which are generally pretty trusted sources of news, uh, yeah, that's when you start to, you know, make people worried. So the FCC's national TV ownership rule does not limit the number of TV stations a single entity may own nationwide so long as the station group collectively reaches no more than 39% of all U.S. TV households. Yeah, so 72 is a bit more than 39. Hey, fun fact of the day. And But the rule is more flexible for stations that broadcast using UHF frequencies, blah, blah, blah. Uh, Pi, who has been accused of aiding the merger by relaxing the ownership regulation, said Monday that Sinclair's plan would allow the company to control those stations in practice, even if not in name, in violation of the law. And he noted that when the FCC confronts disputed issues like these, the Communications Act does not allow it to approve a transaction. So... He's kind of the one who helped write this whole thing, kind of help get this thing pushed through the FCC regulations and get the ball rolling. And now he has to go back his words and say, hey, by our own definitions, this wouldn't pass the sniff test for the FCC. So, anywho, there you go. The court filing is up if you want to read it. It's 22 page of legalese. Very, very boring. But, um... Yeah, the Sinclair Tribune merger, which was a very big deal, uh, looks to be most likely dead before it actually goes through. So a couple of stories here. Uh, Let's see if we can squeeze these in before we actually uh, get it going. But speaking of mega mergers, we have a situation where, uh, let's see, Comcast drops its $71 billion bidding war for 21st Century Fox assets. And it hands Disney the victory. So Disney will be purchasing Fox for, I don't know, I I think their last bid was like 40 some odd billion dollars. And essentially, they said that, hey, Disney is allowed to buy Fox. And that will give Disney, if you wanted to put a number to it, that, that gives Disney, with Fox included, in terms of box office, box office ticket sales, that gives them 40% of all revenue earned through movies to Fox. I don't want to say Disney is fast becoming a monopoly when it comes to entertainment entities, but man, Disney is sucking them up left, right, and center. Uh, do not mess with the mouse. They own so, so much. So, again, just the fact that one company owns 40% of the entire revenue of movies, yeah, kind of puts this into perspective. So, anyways, Comcast not getting a piece of Fox. Uh, Some other stories that we'll probably cover later. uh, There's a new bill working its way through the New York City legislature that is going to force Airbnb hosts to turn over their info. So that if you want to see if one person, one company, one organization actually does own all of the Airbnbs in New York City, now you're going to have the ability to do that. This is one of those situations where sunlight is the best disinfectant. So there's that one. And then another one that we're definitely going to come back to, Google and their recent 5 billion euro fine. I'm sorry, 4 billion... $5 billion fine, 4.3 billion euro fine. 
for being anti-competitive in the search market. So we're definitely going to talk about that later and how they breached the EU antitrust rules and if even this huge fine is even going to solve anything. So there you have it. That's all we have time for today. That's what the music means. Folks, hey, you know, if you enjoyed any part of today's show, please consider entering the social media contest. Again, brought to you by Logitech. Great way to follow the show. Great way to win prizes. And uh, yeah, just be sure to catch us 4 p.m. to 5 p.m. Monday through Friday, Eastern, and new shows for you every day of the week. Folks, until next time, thanks again to our guest, iBeat, for coming on the program, and thank you for tuning in. And yeah, catch you here tomorrow. Everyone, have a great day. Bye-bye.